Whoa, that's not our normal upbeat theme song. That's some scary Halloween music. It's not even Halloween anymore. Unless you're listening to this in the future and it's around Halloween time, then under those circumstances, I guess it is Halloween. So, happy Halloween, intrepid time traveler from the future. You know, if you're new to Pick 6 Movies, let me show you around the place. Each season, we select six movies that are all related to a single theme, and then on each episode, we explore the people in front of and behind the camera and try to make sense out of how and why each movie was made. And then on top of all that, we give you a detailed review of the entire film to see if it's any good. And who is the we of which I speak? Well, I'm talking about my lifelong friend, Mr. Bo Ransdell, and myself, Chad Cooper. And this is episode four of our current season's theme, Hail to the King, Baby, where we're taking on a half dozen movies inspired by the novels and short stories written by Mr. Stephen King. This episode features the film Graveyard Shift, a movie that prior to this season, I didn't even know existed. But you know what? I watched it twice and it's horrible. And right now, as I speak, Bo and I haven't even recorded this episode yet, so I have no idea if it's going to be funny or interesting or even tolerable. But I have heard Bo's introduction to the movie, and it's really good. So what say I shut up with all my yapping and get Bo in here to introduce us to Stephen King's Graveyard Ship. Shit. Shift. Grape. Graveyard Shift. Uh, hey, Dylan? Do me a favor and edit that last part out. Don't make me sound like an asshole, okay? Man, this is a terrible movie. Stephen King likes movies. A lot. Not only is Stephen King one of the most prolific authors of modern times, and not only does he opine at length about form and style of the written word, the need for reading and writing as an existential must, but... The old man isn't afraid to dip his toes into the cinematic either, and I don't just mean the movies that they adapted from his books. Stephen King likes all kinds of movies, just like us. It's so cute, he thinks he's people. In this spooky season of Pick 6 Movies, you don't have to look far to find King popping up on some website or some talk show talking all about his recent favorites at the multiplex. Not only does King rightly show his love for the old Romero Dawn of the Dead, but he likes the recent films, The Witch and The Autopsy of Jane Doe, too. In his books on writing and dance macabre, King spoke at length about how his experiences in the movie houses of his childhood made a lifelong cinema fan out of the future literary star. Unlike some highfalutin types that claim the visual methods of storytelling are somehow inferior to real literature, King loves movies, some of them based on his own works. While big-time directors like Brian De Palma and David Cronenberg adapted his novels, there was no small amount of interest in King's shorter work either. We've talked a lot this season about movies based on King books, but let's not undersell King's work in short fiction. In fact, that's where Stephen King started. His first story appeared way back in 1967, seven years before the publication of his first novel, Carrie. King had been writing short stories since he was a kid, and has published over a hundred short stories as of the time of this recording. The first one to see publication was called The Glass Floor, and appeared in a magazine called Startling Mystery Stories. At the time, King was a recent graduate of the University of Maine, where he'd earned his teaching certificate. Now, this may come as a bit of a shock, 
but teachers, even then, weren't paid all that well. Worse, the young teacher couldn't even find a steady teaching job, so he ended up doing manual labor while he hunted for a teaching gig and wrote short stories late at night to help supplement the family income. He and his wife Tabitha were married in 1971, almost a year after their first child was born. Well, well, guess who was up to the devil's business? His second child came along in 1972, still in the lean pre-carry years. King has often described the little miracles of this stage of his career, when one of the kids would get sick and a story would sell just in time to pay for a hospital visit or to cover the cost of medicine or the heating bill, which is probably pretty substantial in Maine. Most of these stories were sold to men's magazines. You know, stroke books, girly magazines, lad mags, the kind of magazines you leave in a paper bag in the woods or scatter in an elevator when leaving college. You know who you are. These gentlemen's magazines, while primarily known for displaying women's anatomy in the least scientific way possible, also feature the work of some of the great writers of that generation. People like John Updike and Gore Vidal were pinning lofty prose for Playboy, while Gent and Cavalier got the science fiction and horror shorts meant to thrill and titillate. Basically, the bigger a chance you were going to see a girl pee inside the magazine, the more likely Stephen King had a gruesome tale in those pages, tucked between the 1972 all-nude Olympic team and unintentional visual references to lunch meat. The subject of our show tonight, Graveyard Shift, was one of these stories. It first appeared in Cavalier in 1970, another of those miraculous little stories that probably kept the King family's lights on and King himself in cheap canned beer. The cocaine would come later. King always loved short stories. He once said, quote, I think the novel is a quagmire that a lot of younger writers stumble into before they're ready to go there. The shorts were the proving ground of Stephen King, and he wrote some doozies. If you've ever read Survivor Type in the Skeleton Crew collection, you know what I mean. The first collection was called Night Shift, which appeared in 1978 and contained the story Graveyard Shift, which served as the basis for our movie tonight. Of course, Stephen King didn't eke out a living on shorts for very long. Once Carrie hit, he was a star. And, to paraphrase Eddie Murphy, suddenly ends were meeting like a motherfucker. So, what does a suddenly rich writer and movie fan do? He decides to give a little back and, in so doing, created a bit of a legend. See, after King became famous, everybody wanted to be in the Stephen King business. 1978's Carrie proved the writer's work could be good business for movies, too, so everything King wrote was considered for screen treatment. In 1977, King says he first received requests from young filmmakers wanting to adapt his work into a film. A lot of these requests came from amateurs and student filmmakers who found inspiration in King's work in much the same way King himself took inspiration from the films of his youth. Movies like I Married a Monster from Outer Space and Them served as the mulch for King's imagination, and the writer decided he was going to do something decidedly anti-capitalist. He was going to give something back to a medium that had given him so much. The result was an agreement King conceived for all those amateur and student filmmakers who sent him letters asking him for a shot at adapting a short from the author's vast library. The dollar deal, as it came to be known, is where King options the rights to the story to any filmmaker for one US dollar. In exchange, the filmmaker can make their movie with a few conditions. The biggest one is that the movie can't be filmed with the intention of a commercial release. 
That is, you can't expect to turn a profit off the movie or present it for sale unless another agreement is made. Also, you have to send Stephen King a copy of your movie. King described it himself thusly. 77 was the year young filmmakers, college students for the most part, started writing me about the stories I published, wanting to make short films out of them. Over the objections of my accountant, who saw all sorts of possible legal problems, I established a policy which still holds today. I will grant any student filmmaker the right to make a movie out of any short story I've written, not the novels, that would be ridiculous, so long as the film rights are still mine to assign. I ask them to sign a paper promising that no resulting film will be exhibited commercially without approval and that they send me a videotape of the finished work. For this one-time right, I ask a dollar. I have made the dollar deal, as I call it, over my accountant's moans and head-clutching protests 16 or 17 times as of this writing. That was in 1996. So once these films were made and King received his copy, he explains, I'd look at the films, then put them up on a shelf I had marked Dollar Babies. Over the years, a lot of filmmakers have taken King up on his offer. Notably, one of the first films of Frank Darabont was a Dollar Baby version of the King story, The Woman in the Room. Darabont would later adapt The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, as well as The Mist from King's work. King called The Woman in the Room the best of the short films made from his work, but I think he and Frank Darabont may just be buddies, which is nice. Some were good and even made their way to a few film festivals, but they are frustratingly difficult to find. Only one, Paranoid A Chant, directed by Jay Holden, was given permission by King to stream on the internet for a time. When a website appeared which gathered as many of these dollar babies as the curator could find, King's representatives reached out to this webmaster and told him to knock it off. The dollar babies were not meant for wide release. Only J.P. Scott got a pass on that one. Scott directed a version of the story, Everything's Eventual, from the short story collection of the same name, which King liked so much he gave Scott the rights to show it theatrically. It's tough to get your hands on, but it's out there. There's no way to know how many of these movies sit on King's shelf, but he does have one. Labeled Dollar Babies, a copy of every movie King allowed to be made sits in his home, a private treasure trove of interpretation of the horror master's own work. While I would love to get my hands on these, there's something I like too about the notion that Stephen King himself has his own private library of Stephen King movies, made for peanuts in most cases, and of varying quality. I mean, King himself said, quote, Many of these adaptations weren't so great, but a few showed at least a smattering of talent. In many cases, one viewing was all a person could bear. Oh, one other avenue exists for you. Should you be interested in seeing some of these amateur takes on King's work, in 1986, a VHS was released called Stephen King's Night Shift Collection. It had a great cover that made it look like some schlocky sci-fi movie, but it collects Darabont's The Woman in the Room, along with adaptations of Disciples of the Crow and The Boogeyman, into an anthology. It varies in quality for sure, but it's a very interesting slice of King ephemera. While King's generosity became somewhat of an urban legend, like Bill Murray dropping in on wedding parties, that generosity did not necessarily extend to the subject of tonight's film, Graveyard Shift. Graveyard Shift was released in 1990, falling between Pet Cemetery the year before and The Very Good Misery later in 1990. 
modestly budgeted at about $11 million, Graveyard Shift was originally envisioned as a vehicle for makeup effects artist Tom Savini, or Sex Machine if you're a fan of From Dust Till Dawn. The studio wasn't so excited about having Savini as a first-time director, no matter how many zombies he'd created over the years, so Savini was dropped. Ironically, Savini would then go on to direct the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead, which was probably a better choice for him anyway. With Savini out, Ralph S. Singleton was brought in to direct this movie. I know, I know, you're saying, the guy who directed those Cagney and Lacey episodes, Bo? One and the same, my pick six pals. Aside from Graveyard Shift and those Cagney and Lacey episodes, Singleton never sat in the director's chair again, but he did serve as assistant director on some good movies in the 70s and 80s, and even executive produced Joanna Mann, so that's something, I guess. The cast is made up of mostly small-time actors. David Andrews, who plays the lead, John Hall, has been steadily working for a long time, so he's doing just fine. Stephen Macht plays Warwick, the owner of the rat-infested mill in this movie. He's known for some Knott's Landing work in the eponymous Cagney and Lacey. His later career was characterized by some long runs on General Hospital and the USA series Suits, Characters Welcome. Look, the biggest name here is Brad Dourif, who plays the local exterminator. He's been in everything from Child's Play to Lord of the Rings, and he is an excellent character actor. He's clearly overshadowing monster movie also ran Andrew Divoff, who you may recognize from the Wishmaster movies. The first couple, anyways, as the titular Wishmaster. As you wish. Kelly Wolf took on the role of our heroine Jane, and she's been a working actress for a number of years, too. But the real story of this movie is that everyone is kind of playing for the B team. When Brad Dourif, bless his lunatic cackle, is the biggest name in your movie, you, sir or madam, are doing a low-budget horror flick, no ifs, and or buts. And that's just what Graveyard Shift is. The budget, and probably some poor planning, led to some less than special effects, which look about a million times worse in high definition. And once you factor in some marketing, Graveyard Shift might have broken even, but just barely. It was a financial dud, and the critics savaged the movie because, well, you'll see soon enough. Fair warning, this sits at around 13% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that may be generous. But really, can a movie about mutant rants be all bad? Isn't there room in this cynical old world for a dumb monster movie? And how much fun are main accents? For the answers to these questions and more, let's get Chad in here and set out some traps for these rodents of unusual stupid. Ladies and gentlemen, mutants and rodents, I give you 1990's Graveyard Shift. everyone welcome to episode four of episode no shit episode four of season nine of pick six movies this episode of course entitled hail to the king baby where uh we are looking at the films adapted from the works of one uh stephen king i did not realize there would be math on this episode that's when it gets real tricksy for both of us <laughs> Uh, but that is Chad Cooper. I am Bo Ransdell. We are here to offer you uh, what is really just a delightful movie this time around. This is one of the three worst movies we've ever reviewed. Bo. I disagree. I don't think it's nearly that bad. I don't think it's good. Don't get me wrong. 
It's because it's not. But I I don't think it's the worst because at least most of the time something is kind of happening. Sort of. In the bottom 5% of every film we've ever reviewed, this is down there with It's Pat the Movie and Wing Commander. Oh, I can't. Uh, see, to me, this is like a, eh, I was going to say like a Legend of Chun-Li, but that's way more entertaining. <laughs> This is this is just a real wet fart of a movie. Let's just get that right out of the way. Like when I think of the movie Graveyard Shift, what I hear is the movie starts. We get the Paramount logo and you think, oh, this is going to be legit. There were lightning and thunder sounds, too, over the Paramount logo. So uh-huh. I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be spooky. The, the tagline of this movie, Jad, was Stephen King took you to the edge with the Shining and Pet Cemetery this time. He pushes you over. And it's like, that that uh, does not reflect this movie even a little bit. <laughs> this movie opened number one at the box office. And it, it's just reflective of films being sold on the Stephen King brand. That at a certain point in time, people would just go see anything that had Stephen King's name on it. Because they were like, oh, this is going to be spooky and scary. Until they strip mine that and it was just a bunch of horse shit and garbage. Until, you know, the pendulum swung the other way. And we started getting, and in this case, you know, within a few months, you got misery. But it's his Film adaptations are so hot and cold, they're either really, really good, or they're just garbage. There aren't a lot of average Stephen King adaptations. No! I think maybe Cujo is the most average of like, eh, it's kind of okay. Hearts in Atlantis? Was that it? Maybe, yeah. Dolores Claiborne? I don't know. I I never uh, saw that movie, nor did I read the book. I don't know anything about Dolores Claiborne. (laughs) That sounded like some late era Stephen King shit that I just had no interest in. Where I was just like, it's about what? There's somebody getting beat up and there's an eclipse. Eh, no thanks. This movie, however, opens in a textile mill in Maine. And we see a bunch of sweaty working people um, tossing wool or maybe cotton into machines that ultimately make cloth. Yeah, so we, we've we got, uh, notably, Andrew Divoff, a.k.a. the Wishmaster, is one of the guys we see here. And this time he is not in a fine tailored suit. He is in what is colloquially referred to as a wife beater. I only get that out of the way because everybody is essentially wearing the same outfit in this whole movie. Mm-hmm. And that consists of a wife beater and a pair of, like, chinos. And a lot of sweat. This is this is cool hand Luke sweaty. Yeah. And so we've got the Wishmaster. We pass by him and we find a guy who's working alone in the basement at a machine that we later learn is called the Picker. And mm-hmm. uh, or in Maine, because this is all set in Maine, the Picker. And the guy in the basement is clearing this Picker out. And we see our first rat scampering around. Just a little, yeah. you know. Just running around uh, being rat-like. Squeaker, squeak. Squeak, squeak, squeak. (laughs) And we see the basement guy checking the heat and, ooh, lordy, it is 100 degrees in this basement. Yeah, let me just go on record and say about four out of five actors in this film look shockingly like other famous actors that aren't the people playing these parts right because when i saw this guy i thought is that steve carell and then i thought you know what no that's not steve carell but boy if it had been 
<laughs> and the rats had given him like uh, they'd waxed his chest where he's like, oh, yeah. and they're like, ee. Um, but what ha- does happen, Chad, is that when Basement Guy, not Steve Carell, mm-hmm. sees the temperature, he gets real pissed off like you do at the temperature sometimes. Right. And smacks his hand against this uh, beam that the thermometer is, is nailed to. And he says, damn, only now he's cut his hand. Because it's 101 degrees. Right inside the building. And that doesn't even account for the humidity levels, right? Because you got to figure that there's some level of like heat index, right? Or maybe a real feel. Do you prefer heat index or real feel or Um, wind chill factor? I prefer just good old fashioned raw ass science temperature. I don't want to know what it feels like. I don't know. I don't, I don't care what, (laughs) what is is someone's impression is this very subjective, like, you know, it's 98 degrees, but it feels like 104. It's like, fuck you. You don't know what I feel like. Sometimes 98 (laughs) degrees just feels like 98 degrees. And if, if 98 degrees feels like 104, why not just call it 104 degrees then? Right. What if I'm detoxing from heroin? You don't know how cold I am on the inside. What if my soul has died internally yeah you know what if i just don't know how to feel things anymore what if i just cut myself sometimes to see if i can feel anything at all i hurt myself today (laughs) to see if i still feel a focus on the pain only thing that's real squeaker squeak 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 i I like the fact that we have johnny cash rats already (laughs) i hear the foreman coming he's coming down the steps not steve carell's hand is all bleeding so he goes over to this medicine cabinet that's filled with other pre-bloodied cotton balls and he grabs a bottle of iodine or mercurochrome or some such nonsense to start doctoring his hand and then while he's cleaning himself up, uh, you know, to prevent tetanus or locked jaw or full-blown hepatitis A, B, and C, not Steve Carell, he looks over and he sees a rat sitting on a wooden office swivel chair. And he says, hello, Doris, want to help me load the next order? And then Doris, the rat, Doris pisses all over this chair. And I took that as a real no thank you in regard to his request to load up the next order. Is that how you read that, Bo? Yeah. um, Also, I think it's probably the most visually impressive effect of the film. Because when I saw that pedal there, I was like, did that rat just piss? And the answer was yes. (laughs) Not Steve Carell picks up a mop head sized portion of unprocessed cotton and he just mops up the piss and tosses it into the hopper. And my question was like, I wonder what sort of mystery elements might be in my own clothing. Like, is there piss? Are there, is there feces? Snot? Hair? Human flesh? Human semen? Because there are obviously a lot of tears. A lot of tears, a lot of sweat, semen 100%. That's a given. Because the the old rule applies, you build something, somebody's going to fuck it, Chad. (laughs) Who made that rule? That's just science. You you name one thing humanity has ever built that another human being has not tried to fuck. Right. Hold on. I I looked that quote up. It's from Neil deGrasse Tyson, so it's legit. Fair enough. Yeah, it sounds like something he'd say. Yeah. Actually, the quote is, I'm going to fuck that. Dash Neil deGrasse Tyson. (laughs) I thought he got cleared of all that. Mm -hmm. I mean, acquitted. (laughs) Uh, So 
Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> I mean the guy in the basement, um, turns around and a bunch of rats are just lining the rafters of this joint. Mm-hmm. And then because he's a lunatic, apparently driven mad by the odor of rat urine, mm-hmm. uh, is like, well, hello, class. Have you done all your homework? Did you stop for a moment and think, hey, I'll bet this is what Disney's real life adaptation of Ratatouille is going to be like? Oh, my God. They're going to do one of those and it's going to be nightmarish. <laughs> I, I finally started watching one of those. Uh, I saw the Jungle Book, and I thought the Jungle Book was was fine. And yeah. then uh, I started to watch that Lion King, I, and I couldn't do it. Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, it's uh, there's what are you going to say? Uh, there's he, something uncanny about it. He does ask the rats, hello, boys and girls. Did you bring your assignments? No. Well, you know what happens when we don't do our homework. And so this guy, not Steve Carell, he's what licensed medical professionals would call cuckoo. Mm-hmm. And he then picks up a rat and tosses it into this hopper chopper cotton gin machine and then blood shows up all inside the masher and then not steve carell says that he's gonna have to make another example of these rats uh he's pretty much textbook sociopath in this scene and when he yells finally like hey class is over get out of here rats i'm tired of spewing my venom it's amazing that he didn't go on like a screed about immigration to these rats that's right. really where mm-hmm. I think all this was headed. Right. And then we get a shadow of something like moving down the steps, question mark. Uh-oh. That's kind of bigger and growling. Uh, just the shadow of it. And meanwhile, basement guys toss another rat into the picker. And he thinks that the sound of growling and this giant rap shaped shadow coming down the steps is his boss Warwick. And he's like, Hey, Warwick, I'm about to give you a piece of my mind for having me down here with all these rats. And this is gross. And then, uh, we don't see it, but he screams because whatever was coming down the steps was so terrifying that, uh, it made him fall backwards into the picker. Mm -hmm. And then his body parts, uh, start getting nibbled by rats and then opening yeah. credits. That was all cold open, Chad. That's just to yeah. set the stage. Yeah, we see a boot, and it's covered in what looks like red yarn and ground hamburger meat. <laughs> and all these rats, they're all munching on all this stuff. And the opening credits, when it says Stephen King's graveyard shift, it looks like garbage. It is dog shit. It is what it, it looks like what you what you would give back to a student in a graphic design class when they were like, hey, I did this title for a movie. You'd be like, fuck, no. Go back and do it right. And then you can get a grade. Yeah. It is an F. It's the kind of opening. It's the blood drips from the letters the same way that I would expect, let's say, like a Fat Albert Halloween special opening credits to drip like blood. I think you're giving this too much credit. I really feel like because they're so half-assed, it's almost like when you see somebody amateur operating like a Peter Pan flying rig where Uh it just jerks around a lot. It's that kind of animation where it's like you get a little bit of a drop and then the other side starts to drip and then the whole thing comes down and it's just a mess. And also unimaginative. It has the benefit of being poorly done and completely expected. (laughs) 
We cut to a cemetery where we see all these crooked headstones and crypts perpetually shrouded in fog. None of this is going to matter later, by the way. And then we see that the graveyard is flooded. And I'm like, are we in Louisiana? Because it feels like we're down in the bayou. Because this is a Stephen King adaptation. So we're probably in Maine, but I don't know. Yeah, we we have no real place uh, until halfway through the movie or so when... The we main, see a license plate. Not the main character and and not uh, Marissa Tomei are chit chatting, and mm-hmm. she talks about being from North Carolina, but just she came to Maine. Why do we see this graveyard? It doesn't matter at all. It's, it's because the movie's called Graveyard Shift. No, no, this is completely buried in this movie. But what it is is this graveyard is beside the textile mill. Mm-hmm. And that when they're in all these tunnels uh, later in the movie, they are kind of in the catacombs of this flooded cemetery. Oh, right. I thought they were in France. <laughs> it, it might as well have been. Um, but it, like you said, none of that is explained. Nobody nobody ever bothers to say what you need in a movie sometimes. It's just somebody to be like, hey, I think we're under the old cemetery. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all you need. And then done. But that's why you see all those floating coffins in the movie. Next, we get to meet Brad Dorif, who plays Quint. Uh, I mean, the exterminator in the film. Oh, if only he were the Quint. He is in this scene or this whole movie about eight minutes more than I am. Brad Dorif is the poor man's Robert England. If you can't get Robert England, get me Dorif on the phone. Oh, I disagree. I think Dorif is is the rich man's Robert England. I prefer Brad Dorif to to Robert England any day. Oh, come on. No, because, all right, Robert England has done exactly two good movies I can think of, which are Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 3. And Brad Dourif has done, uh, obviously, this, but you've got uh, a great performance, (laughs) a great performance in Cuckoo's Nest. Uh He's all up in those Lord of the Rings movies, and he's creepy in that. He's actually pretty entertaining in the Child's Play movies as the killer when they actually let him be kind of fun. Um, He was in Mississippi Burning. He was great in Mississippi. Like, if you need someone who looks pale and sweaty, get Brad Dourif. And he's going to kill it. Um, so I, and, and also, Chad, so he's coming out of this window to, you know, check this water line. And basically what's happening is he and this assistant of his that we never see again in the movie. Why would we? Right. And none of this matters. Are pumping water from this river into this hose that is then flooding part of the textile mill and flushing out all these rats. I thought that they were sucking the rats out of the textile mill into the nearby river. I guess. Yeah, you're right. I think it is like they're sucking. It's none of this is explained ever in the movie. Well, I, I think that that can be inferred when you hear Brad Dourif scream. God damn. Adios, motherfuckers. If I may, Chad, because I have here in the notes how good this is as well. It's a God damn. It's a great goddamn. I'm a connoisseur of a good goddamn, and this is a great goddamn. Do you have any others that you can reference from other pieces of cinema? Uma Thurman has a great goddamn in Pulp Fiction, which is her kind of paraphrasing the song The Pusher, but it's after she does she snorts the, the heroin. Right. Uh, that's a great goddamn. I'd have to sit down and think about it, but those are I, I when I hear one, I always perk up a little bit. I like I like a good use of God a goddamn or a goddamn it. Either one are are, are quite good. 
Let's cut down to Mysteryburg, Maine, where we get to meet our hero, who is not Tom Berenger. And this town has one place you can work, and that's a textile mill. And there's one place you can get drunk, and that's the town bar. And it's also the only place that you can go get something to eat. There's one stoplight, one horse. This place is not a thriving economy. (laughs) No, this is basically a company town, like from the turn of the century, where they paid you in like, hey, we're paying you in mill bucks. You can spend those over at Tadina. And and that's all you, you can do is work and eat here, apparently. Not Tom Berger. He walks into the town bar because he's got to keep the shakes under control. And on his way in, he passes the town slut. And her name is Nordello. And the other female lead in this movie, who's played by not Marissa Tomei. And let me just say, Nordello, the town slut, I am not slut shaming. I am giving two thumbs up to Nordello. Because everything about this character is awesome until, spoilers, she dies. All right, I'm willing to entertain this argument. I don't see it. Uh, But I will say, though, that Nora Dello, one of my favorite things uh, about this scene, is she says... I'd like his boots under my bed. And yeah, that, you know, Bo, when she says that, what she's meaning is that she wants to lie with him in the the biblical sense. I've inferred that from the following line where her, her buddy, not Marissa Tomei, says, well, you have enough boots under that bed to open a boot shop, you slut. Or, <laughs> or Chad, she is luring men to bed, killing them and keeping their boots Black Widow style. It's unclear. Either way, I'm cool with that across the board. I have no problem with a woman who's like, I like to fuck, and I'm also interested in selling men's footwear. Yeah, she makes a lot of poor choices for herself, though. I think Noradello has a lot of self-defeating behaviors. Like, she chooses men that she knows she can't have. And I think that's the root of a lot of her problems. Yeah, you say that like it's a bad thing, but I think it's her greatest strength. Not Marissa Tomei says, hey, don't make no never mind. He's married. As if that's going to stop a town slut like Nora Dello. That's prime pickings for a town slut, man. Married man, new in town. You know, Nora Dello knows her responsibility, nay, her slut given duty to bed this man and let him know her in a biblical sense. Not Tom Berenger goes for a finger bang with Nora Dello. He's going to draw back a ringless finger. That's for sure. Well, she sells that. Right. How do you you pay for all the boots? (laughs) Right. Not Tom Berenger goes into the town bar. (laughs) And this is the saddest bar I've seen since Silver Bullet. This place has three tables. It's got one pinball machine. And it's not a good one like the Twilight Zone or the Addams Family. It's got one of those like generic poker themes or bowling themes. No, thank you. One of the flippers only goes halfway up. If it ain't Williams, I ain't playing. Or maybe Bally. But other than that, no thank you, sir. (sighs) I've always been a Bally man myself. (laughs) My my father was a Bally man. His father was a Bally man. So not Tom Berenger sees Wishmaster and his pals sexually harassing the waitress at the local company diner. Yeah, it's not, not Alexi Sales. That's the main bully. And Wishmaster is his sidekick? Yeah, they seem to be, I don't know, lovers? They're always together. <laughs> They're buddies. In this bar, there are just random sets of antlers and fish randomly mounted on the walls. And there's lots of signs in there for Michelob and Budweiser beer. And that's regular Michelob, not Michelob Light. And it's Budweiser, the king of beers. Mm-hmm. 
There's also a lot of notable signage for Red Baron Pizza in this bar. I guess what? They have an oven in the back to heat that up for you. May have some Hot Pockets or Steakums, <laughs> Swanson Hungry Man Dinners, Mrs. Calendar's Chicken Pot Pie, Eggo Waffles, Tyson Chicken Tender Dinosaur Shaped Nuggets. I think I'm done. <laughs> you got to enjoy that pepperoni Red Baron. Especially with the Bud Heavy to wash it down, y'all. Red Baron. <laughs> Not Tom Berenger. He's in this bar. And he surveys the town locals. And um, we get to hear Not Alexi Sales, the main bully. He tells this waitress, let's make a baby doggy style. Yeah. Was that line of dialogue improvised or was that in the script? Chad, we have come to the Stephen King thing of the week that I don't need. <laughs> It comes early in this one, and it comes fast. <laughs> and at first, I didn't know what he said, and I had to go back so I could get the line right. And I shouldn't have. I was disappointed that I had done that. So, well done, Graveyard Shift. The Stephen King thing of the week I don't need is not Alexi Sale saying, you want to make a baby doggy style. Not Tom Berenger wanders around and the costume he's wearing makes him look like he's on his way to a Halloween party where he is dressed as John Rambo in First Blood. He's got this green army jacket and blue jeans and work boots and he's got this long thick mullet of hair and he ain't looking for trouble from nobody, Bo. Yep. And then old fat Brian Denny, he rolls into the bar and is, hey, can I give you a ride? Maybe to the edge of town? She get in the back of my car, friend. Not Tom Berenger. He heads over to the local bulletin board where there's all kinds of postings for a job and rooms to rent and cars for sale. And oh, yeah, there's a full blown nude woman centerfold yeah. tacked up as well. Yeah, I, apparently the townies are such that like, hey, I got to be able to look at some stroke material when I'm eating and drinking too. When I got to be looking at some titties. I took it that she was a local girl who made good. You know, and the community's really proud of her. They're like, see that piece there? That's Shannon McDallister, Abe and Margaret's youngest of nine. She goes by the more classy name Crystal Ball when she headlines working the poll. That there's the first woman from this town to be featured on the pages of Mostly Legal Magazine. Come to say she's dead now. Ex-boyfriend cut her head off when they were held up in Anchorage. But in her day, she was quite the beauty when she, you know, still had her head attached to her voluptuous body. Would you care for something to eat? Maybe some wings or curly fries? First member of the FFA to get a boob job, she was. Left her mother proud as punch, I'll tell you. Not Alexi Sales and his sidekick, the Wishmaster. They start giggling in the general direction of not Tom Berenger. And they just start giving this total stranger shit about, quote, not being from around here. Dude, the escalation of this is for not Alexi Sale just to pick up like a biscuit or something and hum it at this dude's head like it's a D battery. <laughs> Nothing in this movie makes any sense. More than any other movie we have seen this season, this movie is absent of character development, character motivation, plot, story arc, structure, coherent dialogue. It feels like a movie that was shot without a script. Yeah, it is the eight-year-old telling you a story of Stephen King adaptations. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the fat one just threw a biscuit at his head and then he left 
And then another guy got a car. <laughs> we cut back to the textile mill and we find out here that it's the Bachman textile plant. Did you catch that, Bo? It's the Bachman. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I don't see any significance. As in Richard Bachman. God damn. <laughs> that is clever. It's layered, man. It's <laughs> layered. This movie is like 10 times smarter than I gave it credit for. <laughs> And the big boss man, Warwick, uh, shows up, not Clancy Brown. He shows up at the mill in his classic P- Plymouth or Cadillac Did you or think whatever. this was Clancy Brown for just a brief moment? Of course it looks just like Clancy Brown. <laughs> and then as soon as he starts talking, you're like, oh, you're not as good as Clancy Brown. <laughs> you listen to our episode on The Bride. The Bride is great. And he's awesome in it. He's awesome in, in Shawshank. The Bride is great when he's in it and, and no other time. And yeah. yes, and Shawshank is amazing, and he is part of that, for sure. So we got yeah. this guy who's not Clancy Brown. And we also hear a radio report that there's an OSHA investigation or something at the mill because a guy got thrown into one of the chomper-chomp machines and ended up turning into bloody yarn and hamburger. Our hero, not Tom Berenger, is waiting inside uh, to get a job. Warwick, though, has other business to tend to first. Because mm-hmm. he's got to go downstairs where the guy in the basement got et by the uh, the uh, picker machine. And there's an inspector checking the place out. And the inspector's like, yeah, the whole place needs to get cleaned up. Low levels, uh, death trap. Warwick's like, no, no, it's cool, man. I organized a cleanup crew for the 4th of July weekend. Also, maybe my friends Benjamin Franklin and his twin brother, Franklin Benjamin might change your mind. And uh, and the guy's like, all right, you got a week, get it cleaned up, and then fucks off. Yeah. So then we cut over to our hero, John Hall, uh, a.k.a. not Tom Berenger, watching mm-hmm. from the office waiting for Warwick to show up. And the guys like Wishmaster and not Alexi Sales uh, and, and another dude, I think, uh, are passing by. And they just, like it's fucking high school, look in the window like he's in the principal's office. And they're like... <laughs> Oh, look at that asshole. (laughs) And you're like, what are they giving this guy a hard time about trying to find a job for? There's no reason that they are his newfound bullies. Right, because they're not angry at him about anything other than apparently existing and looking for gainful employment. As people walk through the mill clocking in for their full day of work and misery, we also get to see not Marissa Tomei. She comes in and we also get to see another character who will show up later, uh, not Kyle Gass from Not Tenacious D. They work at the mill too. And not Tom Berenger. He gets up to leave the office because he's done waiting around trying to get gainful employment. And he's got better things to do, like drinking at that bar from earlier and eating some of that delicious Red Baron pizza. And considering all of the customers of this bar are probably sweating away in this rat hotel one assumes that he would have that bar all to himself right one assumes yes you know gets gets first dibs at the beer nuts and oh normally i'd throw this bread bed right out but since you're here i'll cook it up for you for free it's only a week or two out of date heard you got fired up to the mill not Tom Berenger. He's had enough. And he stands up to leave. And then not Clancy Brown walks into the office and we get to see a heavy bag. You know, the type that boxers use to practice beating up other human beings is just hanging in the corner, which that's an odd touch. Does that mean that not Clancy Brown used to be a boxer? I, 
maybe i mean if we're doing patented pick six movies fan fiction you uh-huh. could make that argument but you could also just as well say that he's a fan of boxing paraphernalia as he is a boxer because you never see him use it no and and there's no like posters of like you know unbeatable Warwick you know for like going nine rounds with a killer or no posters mm-hmm. or anything to indicate that he had a career. No. So he does know. he does beat up not Tom Berenger later, but it's not like he's using his boxing skills as the means to teach him a lesson. No, that is one of the most Irish fights you're you're gonna see. We'll get to it, but there's a lot of using whatever's handy to hit somebody in the head. <laughs> Before not Tom Berenger can leave the office, not Clancy Brown walks in and Noradello, remember, the awesome town slut, she comes in and the two of them are canoodling and she's kind of touching not Clancy Brown low on his waist. You know, the way that like U.S. presidents touch their adult daughters. It's real suggestive, but not overly sexual. You know, it's like, hey, man, people are watching. And then not Clancy Brown. He smacks Noradello on the ass as she leaves the office. You know, the way that I'm guessing that U.S. presidents do their adult daughters who work (laughs) in the White House administration. You know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about. And I think you're absolutely right. And then Warwick. God (laughs) damn. So good, man. And then uh, Warwick finally turns his attention to not Tom Berenger and starts looking his resume over mm-hmm. and giving him a, some shit about like, you know, sounds to me like you're on the run. And then gets around to calling him a college boy, which is one of those insults that also has never made much sense to me. Like, so went off and got yourself educated, huh? Trying to better yourself. This dude didn't go to college. He'll tell you he went to the school of hard knocks, which... If you do the math on that, those four years were spent uh, at a car wash. (laughs) Do you think not Clancy Brown would have been more put off by his lie that he went to college? Or if he wrote down, I am a convicted sex offender. If he were a convicted sex offender, he would immediately have hired him and be like, you'll fit right in around here. Have you, have you thought about management? Not Clancy Brown says, you used to work at the Mama Mill. Did you ever work at the Pekka? You have. Well, guess what? You got the job. You're working 11 to 7. The graveyard shaft. It's fun when they say the name of the movie you're watching in the context of the movie, isn't it, Bo? I still applaud. That is a habit I picked up when we were kids, and I do it to this day. I always think about that uh, Michael J. Fox, James Woods, cop buddy flick the hard way uh-huh there's only one way these two are gonna get along chad <laughs> and they say to this like we can do this one of two ways we can do it the easy way look at the camera look back at mr fox or the hard way god damn that's good <laughs> that's good writing it's like, oh just like the name of the movie <laughs> I wonder if that's ever surprised anybody, like, especially in something like this at Graveyard Shift, where he's like, you'll be working for minimum wage, 11 to 7, the Graveyard Shift. And somebody just went, what? Jerry, did you know he was going to say that? As soon as Not Clancy Brown says the movie's title, we hear a woman scream. And the woman screaming is the mill secretary. And she is a large woman. And she comes running, I'm being generous here, around the corner. And she's being chased by what I'm assuming is a cocaine-fueled Brad Dorif. Because he is dripping with sweat, bug-eyed, with hands full of exterminator weapon. Yeah, and inexplicably, Brad Dorif 
has a strong southern accent mm-hmm. and it has this big like arachnophobia tank on his back mm-hmm. and he is chased down a rat yep and hoses it down with his anti-rat juice and then says spread the word fucker when this happens the rat says squeak squeak squeaker squeak and i know this because the subtitles read squeak squeak squeaker squeak <laughs> I love Brad Dourif in this movie. I wish he were in it way more. They had to have filmed all of his scenes in one day, right? One tops two. If if like the, the graveyard stuff was a second day. You could edit him out of this movie and it wouldn't make a difference. He Yes, he does not matter to this movie at all other than being the best thing in it. <laughs> So it's not, it's late at night and not Clancy Brown. He shows back up at the textile mill under the cover of dark. And you know, he's not just a manager that tells you what to do. He's going to get down in the trenches with you, Bo. And he goes inside and he sees not Tom Berenger and he's inside working the Pekka. And uh, it's, that's the machine that our earlier guy, not Steve Carell, um, was working. Uh, at this point, a bunch of rats show up to watch the show like they did at the beginning. And not Tom Berenger, instead of, you know, playing school with all these rats and lecturing them about not doing their homework the way not Steve Carell did. Um, not Tom Berenger instead. He grabs an empty Diet Pepsi can and he pulls out a slingshot that I guess he just carries with him everywhere he goes, a la Bart Simpson. And he just starts <laughs> firing off empty soda cans one by one at these rats. Yeah, if you look closely, it's actually a little bastard brand. And it's not just a Diet Pepsi can. There is all kinds of, of soda cans. There's a Mountain Dew can. There's a Mr. Pib can. There's a Sundrop, Orange Crush, mm-hmm. Grape Shasta, mm-hmm. Cheer Wine. Mm-hmm. Brad Dourif then delightfully surprises the movie by uh, reappearing in it. He magically shows up. Yeah, and just goes, good shooting. <laughs> and uh, not Tom Berger is just like, huh, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> He's like, well, yeah, you know, I was just looking around this mill and I got to tell you, it's infested. And... uh. <laughs> Not Tom Berenger is just like, okay, do I know you or something? You are way up on top of me right now. (laughs) And he's like, they want me to put some poison out. You know what that poison will do? The rats will piss on that poison to warn their friends. The only way to kill them is on their own terms. Let me tell you a story about Vietnam now. I was was in the trenches of Poonam. And me and the boys, we had formed a bit of a detente if you will, with the rats, where we would give them some food. Just listen to the story. I think it will explain everything more. Uh, Okay. All right. So me and my boys were feeding these rats, and they ain't eating us, you know, like rats do. But the Viet Cong, and maybe I'm a little prejudiced here. I ain't going to lie about that. You are. But these filthy, rotten Viet Cong motherfuckers. Yeah. They made a deal with these rats where they started giving them hot god damn meals right and so the rats well Mm -hmm. they look for the next source of food that's nice and hot and you know what Mm -hmm. it is jim boy tell me it's us oh sometimes they would capture us and tie us down to stakes like our lord god jesus christ stakes in our hands and feet Mm -hmm. Wow. They, that sounds terrible. It was awful. Now, don't interrupt again this important rat story. And they'd make an incision. <laughs> and not enough to kill you. You understand what I'm saying? Right, right. I told you not another goddamn word. And then, shut your non-military mouth. I spilled blood 
in Poonam with these goddamn rats so you could have the freedom to go to college, college boy. You don't think I heard about that? I go to the diner too. I have a bachelor's degree in world geography. I don't think that Poonam is a real place. That's very interesting. I would like to hear more about your matriculation. <laughs> Wrong. I want to finish my rat story. Surprise. <laughs> go, go ahead. So they make this incision, not enough to kill you. And they take a rat and they put its head in that wound. And they're like, go on, eat up. Mm. And if that don't do it, you know what they do? They take up. What, what? I told you not to say a word. You were doing so good. Just a big an active participant in your story. Tell me what they do. Be a gold star listener for once. They would take a fire hot rice bowl and they would put it over that wound and over that rat so that he had only one way to go away. Out your asshole? I mean, ultimately, yes. You Have I told you this story before? Because they all go right out the ass. I'm just pretty observant. Go ahead. Oh, no, that was the end, literally and figuratively, of the story is that rats do, if they are in your abdomen, will 99% of the time go right out the pooper. <laughs> you know the thing about a rat? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes like a doll's eye. <laughs> Look, here's one of those things. I have heard this rat story before about like how they used to torture people this way. Uh-huh. From Brad Dorf personally at Comic-Cons. I have heard it. Game of Thrones used it. And then I looked it up and it was a real thing. And it's one of those things that you just know. It's a little factoid that sometimes you pull down off the middle shelf. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, in the Middle Ages, sometimes they would torture people by putting a, a bucket of rats up to someone's belly and then lighting a torch to heat up the bucket. Huh. That's something that human beings are capable of anyway back on the shelf 1100 men went into the textile mill 316 men came out the rats took the rest june the 29th 1975 anyway we delivered the bomb of a movie graveyard shift it was a fucking piece of shit (laughs) so not kyle gas is now doing an impression to lighten the mood in the uh, in the mill. Yeah, he's imp- he's impersonating not Clancy Brown yeah. for the amusement of not Marissa Tomei. Right. And he's like, hey, where are you, college boy? Are you on the graveyard shift? You are now. His stupid impression is worse than our like main impression we've done thus far. It's really bad. I mean, but he's, in theory, he is doing kind of an impression of not Clancy Brown, but also has a main accent of his own. And it's one of those actor's tricks where you're trying to do an impression of someone while doing an accent, and it fails miserably on every level. Mm -hmm. So as he's doing this impression, Warwick shows up in a wife beater and pants that are up to his nipples. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, no, don't stop on my account. That's doozy of an impression you got there. And uh, he says, hey, I think you're supposed to give me a work order, aren't you? And not call guesses like, oh, okay, thank you, sir. And then he runs off. Not Marissa Tomei says, look, we're totally ahead of schedule. So not Clancy Brown. He goes over and just aggressively starts sexually harassing her. He says, you there, not Marissa Tomei. It would be nice to have parts of my body and side parts of your body. Preferably the parts that are soft and moist. And then not Marissa Tomei says, beat it, you big sweaty jerk. And then there's also this nameless old man in this shot. And he is constantly riding the like loom part of the textile machinery. I'm really guessing that he was the guy on set that made sure that this machinery didn't rip off the actor's arms and or legs. Right. He was the picker wrangler. 
I guess so. Not Clancy Brown offers not Marissa Tomei a job to help clean up the basement for double pay. And I was like, I don't know if this is punishment or a promotion. Well, it is the most textbook example of like workplace inappropriate behavior of like, well, all I did was offer her a job for sexual favors. And I'm like, right, exactly. That is a, a completely the wrong thing you, sh- you should do. Huh. Which part was it when I offered her a job on the basis of her looks and the potential of me getting her in my office and preferably mm-hmm. nude? Yes. Perhaps doggy yes. style. All of that. All of that and so much more. Huh. In fact, all of the things you forgot to tell me, they're included in whatever confession you just made. So we're back in the basement and some random guy stringing up lights down there so that the lucky chosen few can clean up this pile of rickety chairs and random basement trash. And then we hear more rats going squeak, 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 or squeak, squeak. And it turns out that they're just all over the place. And then what appears to be oversized bat wings just appear out of nowhere from the shadows. And this name worker gets wrapped up in the wings and he gets eaten by a monster or something like we don't see any of this the coolest thing about this scene is when he gets wrapped up in the rat bat wing Mm -hmm. uh you get the impression of his face in the wing it's like oh that's kind of neat and then nothing else happens in the scene it's like oh well that's disappointing Let's cut to the fat secretary and she's hanging out a sign that says now hiring outside of the textile mill. And she's also wearing a dress that's covered in brightly colored donuts with frosting featuring every hue of the rainbow. Why would a fat woman wear that dress? The answer is she wouldn't. (laughs) Why would the costumer of this film put a fat woman in a dress like that? Because she's a sadistic asshole. That actress had to resent that costume choice, right? Yeah, yeah. I I suppose you're right. I'm trying to think if I've ever thought I might want to wear a t-shirt that's just a plate of chocolate chip cookies. Hell, I resented it, and I'm about as disinterested in this movie as one can be. Do you think it's because, like... The It would invite the insult of, like, hey, you eat what you're wearing, and that's why you're fat. <laughs> I don't know. It's just stupid. Like, she should just wear a big white t-shirt that says, I'm fat. And then you'd be like, well, you know what? We just cut out the middle man. Or, like, if her character at any point in the movie was like, oh, I sure do love donuts, you know, then maybe you could get away with it if she doesn't say anything she just screams and runs around the corner and hangs up help wanted signs yeah i mean this movie could be set in the year 1954 or 1984 it all looks exactly the same i have no idea what point in time this film takes place like it feels like like you said it's the 40s or 50s but then a little later there's a guy wearing a walkman and you're like well is this the 80s the movie's just lazy and just slapdash together are you suggesting that two-time director of cagney and lacy was not up to the task of a feature film i think that two-time director of cagney and lacy didn't sober up enough to pay attention to the details that helped to make this film a little more coherent in its its narrative nice so not tom berenger goes into the diner bar city courthouse Mm-hmm. And <laughs> remember, if you have if you have a hearing today, it's half price off onion rings. It is <laughs> happy hours from four to six, court from six to eight. Bailiff, bring in the next case. Clack clack. <laughs> I will hear from the moose. Uh, not Alexi Sale is like our hero is sitting at a table, and not Alexi Sale is like, hey, guess what? <laughs> Me and the boys, we got you something because 
you're working the picker now. And sure enough, uh, it's a plate that's got a napkin over it. Um, not Tom Berenger pulls the napkin back and it's a rat on a bun. And again, the question is begged. Why are they fucking with this guy about this? I think the bigger question is where do they get the rat and where do they get the hamburger bun and the whole place setting? Cause there's lettuce and tomato and hash browns on this place. <laughs> the short order cook is like, do you want to press charges? We can put you on the docket tonight. Assault by rat. Not Marissa Tomacy's all this go down. And she says under her breath, bastards. Which I was like, was that her order? <laughs> they took my rat burger. Son of a bitch. You know what? You know, I have to call ahead for that. Not Alexi Sale. It's like a baked Alaska. It takes eight hours. God damn it. You know, you mock what you don't understand. If you would try it, if you would, if you would taste how it's prepared and Gene does it right. I think, yeah, Gene <laughs> does the best rat burger you're ever going to put in your mouth. And you're too immature to even give it a day in court. Nope, not till eight. I've got a whole play happening in my head now about the court of, of Bachman Mill. Anyway, so outside, uh, not Marissa Tomei sees not Tom Berenger and offers him a ride. To where? His home? <laughs> Apartment? I don't know. The tent on the outskirts of town? The abandoned refrigerator box that he found blowing in the wind? All of, all of that is a Fine question, Chad. I don't have answers for you. I know that we go to one of their homes later, but I'm not sure whose it is. It's hers, and it's a trailer. Spoilers, she lives in a trailer, as does everyone in this town. Man, there is legitimately a good movie to be made mm -hmm. of a story of a, a shitty foreman forcing his slave labor lackeys to do a shitty job that puts them in danger. Isn't that Madawan? You mean the John Sayles film? Yes. Yes. It is Madawan. And Warwick's uh, friend Donatello um, hugs up to- Wait, who are we talking about? Her, His lady friend? What's her name? Noradello, the town slut. Not not Clancy Brown and, and Noradello, the town slut. Right. And she's kind of hugging up on him and he's like, you shouldn't be doing that in the daylight. Maybe she likes it. Some people get off on having sex in public places. That's why she is the hero of this movie. She likes to fuck. She's not apologetic about it. She's just like, let's get it on, man. But she knows he's married, which makes it less cool. But we as the audience have no idea he's married. This is true. We don't find that out until later when she breaks into his office. Right. Set that shit up early on. You're right. But it, it would help explain his behavior a little bit if it were like, hey, keep it on the down low. So a guy named Charlie shows up. Yeah, Charlie's the black guy in the movie. The one. I mean, but true to life, Mayan has like five black people total. And this is one of them. Mm -hmm. A guy named Charlie. And he's asking for a job. And uh, Warwick is like, do you believe in spooks and specters? Gas? Oh God. And he's like, if it's got a paycheck, I'll believe anything you want, Mr. Warwick. <laughs> and <laughs> Warwick tells his his, his squeeze, uh, Dorinello, Laradello, yeah. that he'll talk to her uh, later. About, he says, I'll talk to you later about that there thing. And then nods at her cooch. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, keeping it classy, Warwick. She looks genuinely hurt. Maybe she has a different pet name for it. And it's, you know, she doesn't appreciate him calling it her thing. Her that there? Yeah, that is the most Mormon reference to a vagina I've ever heard. Dolores. Mm, to the business around the corner. Mulva. <laughs> to the unmentionable. Um, 
We cut to not Marissa Tomei and not Tom Berenger in uh, in her car. She's at the wheel of this vehicle and her legs are spread with her left foot up on the dashboard beside the rearview mirror and her right foot, I'm guessing, is down on the gas to make the car go. And is this in an effort to make her look cool? Yeah, but I will say from a casting point of view, the lady who plays not Marissa Tomei strikes Uh me as the hottest person who works at your local mill she strikes me as the hottest person who works at your local circle k i mean six of one i mean we're talking about like this little microcosm where everybody you know works there all the time kind of thing and Mm -hmm. she's not gorgeous but she's the hottest one there Nora Dello's better looking than her man a hundred percent Nora Dello is a stunner Yeah, she's sexy, she likes to fuck, she day drinks, she sticks her hand down your pants in public. Two thumbs up for Nora Dello. I'm totally team Nora Dello. Yeah, I agree. I agree. If we're talking, like, if we're Ginger or Marianne this, then it's Mm -hmm. it's Donatella Nora Dello all day. Yeah. (laughs) But they're trading some backstory, (laughs) and she says that she's from Castle Rock, and you're like, huh? Eh? You mean... The subsidiary of Warner Entertainment? That Castle Rock? No, no, no. Well, that too, Chad. As you may or may not have learned throughout this season, Castle Rock is actually a frequently used location in Stephen Mm. King novels and doffing a tip of the chapeau in Stephen King's graveyard shift. (laughs) They're like, see, we're part of the Stephen King stories. We're cool, right? Over here on the left, you can see the pet cemetery. On the right, that there's the cornfield. It's filled with children. Children of the corn, if you would. Over here on the left, you can see the Overlook Hotel. Let's keep going on. Boy, I polish my Plymouth Fury to a high shining. <laughs> Is that enough? All of this can be found in the upcoming Hulu series. Nobody watched it. All right, we'll keep going. All right. <laughs> yeah, I watched that first season of Castle Rock, Chad. Uh-huh. I didn't watch the second. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, not Marissa Tomei drops off, not Tom Berenger at somewhere. Again, wherever it is that he sleeps, a park bench under a tree with a newspaper blanket. Not Marissa Tomei says, I think that not Clancy Brown is going to put you on the cleanup crew down in the basement. And uh, we need to really keep the plot of this movie on life support. So on top of all that, I'll bet your wife Ain't too thrilled about all this. I mean, you know, being in this shitty movie and all. And Dot Tom Berenger says, my wife's dead. And then not Marissa Tomei says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that your wife's dead. Did she commit suicide or did you murder her? And then not Marissa Tomei throws fuck eyes at not Tom Berenger to show that these two might end up falling in love. But it's so abrupt. Like the way you're describing it, it like it takes a quarter of the time. <laughs> it does <laughs> where she's just like hey are you gonna be on the the basement crew i don't think so hmm i'm pretty sure you will be if i know warwick and i do hey what's up with your wife is she dead or what and you're like what she's the dead. fuck what is going on <laughs> you get emotional whiplash in this movie where all of a sudden you're like wait who died what happened are you okay why does she think not Tom Berenger is married in the first place? He doesn't wear a ring. There's nothing about him that says I might be married. Is she just assuming that everyone over the age of 17 is automatically presumed married, widowed, a spinster, or confirmed bachelor? I wonder if it's the thing where you're like, 
hey, so is there a Mrs. Not Tom Berenger? Wink, wink. Like, it, it, you're kind of floating the test balloon to bring up a wife that you don't know exists to see if one does exist kind of thing? She needs to take a page from Nora Dello. Right, just put your hand down his pants, see what happens. She's already got her legs spread when she's driving the car. She's halfway home. Come on, man. Uh, Charlie and Warwick are touring the basement where because yeah, you know, Charlie the black guy and not, not Clancy, Clancy Brown. Brown. And and Charlie the black guy in this scene, he's now wearing a red jumpsuit. Yes. But let let's just reflect on what's happening here. We're in a horror movie set in Maine, and the one and only black guy is wearing a red jumpsuit. The only way that Charlie the black guy in this movie could be even more likely to die is if he were to have been beamed down to Earth from the USS Enterprise and was just one week away from retiring and leaving this crummy job for a better life somewhere else. Who's to say he wasn't, Chad? We have no backstory on this character. (laughs) Why would we want that? He could be on shore leave from the Enterprise. (laughs) Water's pouring down into this basement from up above and not Clancy Brown tells Charlie the black guy in this movie, you need to clean up this water here. Bring in a water vac tomorrow. You got to mop this shit up. And then Charlie, the black guy in this movie, he's like, look, you dumb bumpkin. Do you want I should get a water vacuum here or should I mop it up? Seeing as if I have a water vacuum, I don't need a mop. (laughs) Which is it, dummy? Charlie also puts on headphones in this scene because he's like, "Mm mm-hmm, creepy basement. Apparently somebody uh, went missing from here. Or this job suddenly opened up. Uh, so, I don't know. Seems like a good time to cut myself off from the world around me and just dive into this. And we see a milky white eyeball blink. And then we get more, like, rat claws scraping on the walls. And then as Charlie is, you know, absent from the world around him. Th- this movie is so poorly made. We then see Clancy Brown show up and put his hands on the shoulders of Charlie, the black guy. And he kind of jumps and he's all scared. And then not Clancy Brown's like, bet jumpy that kid, you know, shouldn't wear your headphones. If you're going to be so skittish, got to clean up down here. Then to be, you know, as creepy as possible as a boss in this scenario, he's like, don't worry. Rats don't bite. And Charlie's like, hey, what happened to the guy who was working down here before anyway? And uh, not Clancy Brown says, hmm. He didn't work out. And you're like, uh, was that supposed to like land with a, a, a bang or something? That found a funny story. He died down here tragically under mysterious circumstances that I braved a man to ignore. Uh, good luck and let me know who to send your final paycheck to there, Charlie the Black Guy in this movie. You might want to change the color of your uniform if you want to make it to the third act. <laughs> so we cut to Noradello, you know, the town slut, and we see her pouring an airplane bottle of Jack Daniels into her coffee mug, and then she stirs it with an ink pen. Look, I love Noradello in this movie, but she is a mess. Because <laughs> earlier, Noradello... <laughs> <laughs> she was dressed up to be doing manual labor in the the mill but here she's dressed up like she's going to be doing administrative work and then the fat secretary she comes in and she tells Noradello, you know the town slut that she's now on cleanup detail working in the basement and we get some aggressive violin music that the fury of hell 
again, pales in comparison to the scorn of this woman, especially Noradello, the town slut, who is actively day drinking. And so Noradello, again, the town slut, she goes outside and using a large fireman's axe starts smashing up not clancy brown's car and first she starts with the headlights then the grill then the doors then the tires then the windshield it is reminiscent of christine getting smashed up and i was secretly hoping that she would just drop trowel and take a dump on the dashboard i'm with you yeah it's a it's a real go to town. Um, <laughs> like if damn, it feels good to be a gangster. We're playing. It would not be inappropriate. Uh, Alexi sales sidekick, the Wishmaster. He says, Oh man, not Clancy Brown is going to be wicked pissed. Harvard yard about all this. Oh my God. That uh, another one of those lines where you're like, Oh, that just, somebody should have stopped someone. Not Clancy Brown finally, you know, storms down from his office and grabs her and gets the axe away from her. This is embarrassing because all 23 residents of this lovely hamlet are outside watching this display of drunken, violent revenge. Well, of course they are, Chad. They they work in a company town. There's no television that we've seen so far. <laughs> no. So their only entertainment is when somebody finally goes off their nut and just starts breaking shit. And this time it's Nordello. So, but she tells not Clancy Brown, you can't put me on basement detail. I know things. I was like, what do you know? Are you talking about the rats? Are you talking about the mysterious possible giant rat? Do you have dirt on Clancy Brown and his wife we haven't been introduced to yet? What does she know? Well, before we can get to the bottom of that, uh, not Clancy Brown plans to shut her up with a, like five across the chops. Uh-huh. And right, he like, he cocks his arm back. And then, of course, yep. our hero, Tom Berenger, steps in and grabs his arm. Hey, you, get your damn hands off of her. Right. And then, not Marissa Tomei is like, come with me, baby. I got to hear all about this shit. You know what that means, Bo? They're going to the bar to eat some Red Barons and get fucked up drunk. A hundred percent. And it is 1030 in the morning. Yeah, No, whatever she knew and threatened Warwick with, everyone is going to know by 2.30 a.m. at last call. <laughs> Not Clancy Brown tells the crowd, all right, people, show's over. Go back to doing what you were doing. And then the townsfolk are like, well, we were watching you beat up a woman. And then before that, we were kind of just, you know, waiting for death to end our miserable lives in this poor excuse of a town we call home. It's daylight, so we can't fuck yet. So <laughs> this is what we got. And also, not Clancy Brown. This is another one of those scenes where I'm like, is his torso too small? Are his shoulders too broad? Both. There is something about the shape of this man that is genuinely off-putting. <laughs> and then we cut down to not tom berenger who is cleaning the picka while mm -hmm. once more some rats are watching him that's how they do this is all kind of a mirror of the first scene where we get a shot of the thermometer and it's almost 100 degrees again and then uh not tom berenger it goes to the desk but instead of you know throwing his bloody cotton at rats uh he gets out his little bastard brand slingshot Yep. Normally reserved for getting Mr. Wilson's goat, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> and turns to fire. And But all the rats have gone. Huh? And then he sees a shadow coming down the steps. Again, like the, oh the first God. scene. And we're like, oh no. Here comes a giant rat. 
but it's not Clancy Brown instead. Again, looking weirdly disproportionate. Yeah, that's got to be awkward because, you know, a little earlier, he grabbed his fist and prevented him from publicly beating a woman who had vandalized his car. I wanted to also ask you, Bo, as a man who has been known to smoke here and there, during this scene, not Tom Berenger, when he's smoking his cigarette, he does that French inhale move, also known as the Irish waterfall, Uh where you let smoke drift out of your mouth and then you inhale it back up into your nose. Uh Uh-huh. Why do smokers do that? Because smokers already look so cool just smoking. That's it. Is this a way to kind of crank up the coolness even more? A hundred percent. Yeah. If you and I was never able to really do it. It's it's uh-huh. not something I ever uh, was capable of doing when I smoked. So look, you're right. Smoking is automatically cool. There's no kidding right. around that. I know. But that's one of the like. If you can do that, the other one that's pretty good is the slow curl out of the nostrils. And and that takes some discipline because that does not always feel good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not cool like that. I I used to be. I used to be, Chad. And those were the days. I, I'm glad I don't anymore. But man, there are days I would kill everyone in the room for a cigarette. <laughs> not Tom Berenger shoots a can at not clancy brown and uh realizes the error of his ways and he's like sorry i thought you were a rat and not clancy brown says not the first time somebody thought that about me around here not that tom Barringer. i want to thank you for preventing me from beating that woman in front of the whole town today tempest flash she's a drunk normally i take out my anger on the heavy bag of my office but today things got a little bit out of hand i want to offer you a chance to come down and earn some extra cash cleaning up the basement and other a sundry miscellaneous crap and then during this scene not clancy brown he's holding a green apple and he takes a bite at the end of him making this you know ominous offer and i wanted to ask you about what's up with bad guys or maybe like arrogant guys in movies and apples in film well chad i don't mean to get biblical on you oh but it turns out that apples uh were associated with the devil Hmm. Do you think it represents like a sense of nonchalance or that this character's in control that you could just chomp on an apple in front of other people? I, you know, right. I think that's part of it is that he's just like, I'm just casually eating my lunch, barely caring about what you think at all. And there's that there's the the biblical imagery and also it gives a villain something to do it gives it that dramatic like you know when he bites into the apple at the end of this after he's like you're not too smart a college boy to understand double pay would be good for you oh, yeah and then you know bites into it and it's you know it's a dumb prop that is overused it is a bad trope and it should go away do you think in this scene that it would be better or worse if they replaced the green apple with like a silver flask? And after he makes the offer to work in the basement, he just takes a shot of booze. What would you prefer, apple or booze? Uh, probably apple to booze. What if you replace the green apple with him pulling out a cigar and then he lights up the cigar at the end of the offer? Oh, I'll always go for a cigar. What if you replace the apple with a tangerine? Nah, I'd stay, stay with apple. What about a full-size uncut pineapple? Pineapple. A bunch of unripe bananas? How many of the bunch does he have to eat? Mm, j- just one. He's going to stick it in his mouth. All right, banana. How about an eclair filled with custard? If it squirts out the end when he bites into it, the, the eclair. What about a six-inch BMT fully loaded from Subway? That would be awesome, yes. The BMT. How about a full block of Velveeta cheese? <laughs> the cheese, naturally. 
a bowl of chocolate pudding with a straw. Pudding and straw. A small goldfish bowl containing a single fish that he picks out and slurps down. Uh, apple. A tall stack of buckwheat pancakes smothered in syrup, whipped cream, and strawberries. Mm, apple. A red, white, and blue popsicle that he sucks in a very suggestive way. I mean, popsicle. Let, let, let's do something in this movie, you know? A giant jar of brightly colored jelly beans that he pours over his open mouth, getting most of the candy on the floor. Jelly beans. A plate of cookies that he proceeds to consume as though he were the cookie monster. Uh, apple. A bowl of cream that he laps up like a kitten. <laughs> I would love to see him looking over the top of it, like never losing <laughs> eye contact. Thirsty, are you? <laughs> Can't have any of this. Yeah, so the cream, obviously. How about a tube of bright red lipstick that he smears around his lips like Steve Buscemi from Billy Madison? Uh, I, I'm going to go Apple. How about a ventriloquist dummy that's really racist? Like worse than Jeff Dunham racist dummies. Oh, definitely Apple. All right. Lastly, a shockingly inappropriate piece of molded chocolate in a shape of your imagination's choosing that not Clancy Brown kisses, followed by a suggestive wink to not Tom Berenger. It would be in the shape of a fawn, the mythological creature, and obviously that. Okay. All right. Let's cut back to the town bar and not Marissa Tomei and not Tom Berenger. They're drinking and smoking. That's a shocker. And not Marissa Tomei has a thick toothpick sticking out of her mouth. But you remember when toothpicks were a thing? Is that still a thing? I, Among a certain kind of person, I think toothpicks are still a thing. I don't get food stuck in my teeth that often. Are, are toothpicks just a poor excuse for brushing your teeth? Eh, I think it depends on the scenario. Because every now and again, I'll get a little something stuck in there and uh, a toothpick comes in handy. But a lot of times what I just use is bourbon, Chad. Just flush that in and out of there and that seems to shake it loose. What about like the tip of a steak knife? You ever use that to get something out of your teeth? Like a... Or maybe I got a pair of scissors. No, look, I'm the kind of clumsy. I live my life in a very final destination way where I'm constantly on the look for that thing that's going to kill me, you know? So, like, no, putting a steak knife in my mouth, 100% uh -huh. no. You will never see that. You're not that. looking at, like, like, screwdrivers or ice skate blades? No, like, I will make sure that the socket is turned off when I'm changing a light bulb. <laughs> the whole deal, I'm like, nah, 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 you ain't getting me this way, death. You're pretty much going with, like, your finger or your toenail someone else's toenails something like that if someone preferably someone with a toothpick a stranger no. with a toothpick going in there taking care of business let me get that gristle they would say not marissa tomei is constantly wearing tube tops in this movie or alternatively she has her shirt tied up in a knot to show off her flat stomach and in this film she's always smoking marlboro reds and in this scene she strikes a match with her thumb to light her cigarette she's what some might call a real broad Bo. she's a real broad <laughs> uh-huh yeah, she's a, a, a real blue-collar kind of lady. They're sitting in the bar, and in the booth behind them, we got uh, Not Kyle Gass, and he's reading the book Ben, which is a, a story about a rat. That's fun, isn't it, Bo? Boy, you know, this is rule number seven. Don't remind me of a better movie in your shitty movie. And Ben is a far better movie than his Graveyard Shift. Not as good as Willard. Based on the perceived education level of the people in this town, I expected this guy to be reading the Little Golden Book illustrated adaptation of the Pied Piper. <laughs> right. That all the mice came from Richard Scary books. <laughs> oh, look, they're going to the city in this one. 
beep, beep. At the other booth is Charlie, the black guy in our movie. And then uh, who comes walking in but the town bullies, not Alexi Sales and his sidekick, the Wishmaster. And they announce that they're going to be on the basement cleanup crew as well. So plot point well taken. And then not Marissa Tomei and not Tom Berenger. They leave the bar to go to Marissa Tomei's trailer. And then there, these two eat food and they smoke and they probably drink and talk. And not Marissa Tomei says that the mill um, once offered her a job promotion back in the day that involved her having sex on Mondays and Wednesdays with not Clancy Brown. And she said, no way, Jose. I'm not having sex with you on Mondays and Wednesdays. You're like, all right. Great, you didn't do that. And in this trailer, we see a poster. Um, it looks like something you'd see in a travel agent's office. And it's of this sandy beach with blue water. And it says Jamaica up on the wall. And then this whole scene goes nowhere. In theory, this is somehow going to be the scene where they, you know, fall in love or, you know, what is, what is often referred to as a meet cute. Uh, something like that. One thing that is interesting about this scene in this movie as a whole, though, is that it's surprisingly pro-union. You know, she's like, oh, you know, I, I would have, I went once I turned him down from his sexual harassment offer, I, I would have been out on my ass, but the union saved me. And there are a number of times when Warwick is talking to not Tom Berenger when he's mm-hmm. like, well, you're not union yet, so... You know, I can basically treat you like a slave. I can. I would be interested in watching a remake of Martha Ray if it involved a giant rat that ate members of the union. Oh, man. You you thought scabs were bad. Now get ready for rats. Seeing cute little Sally Field stand up on, you know, a table with a sign that says rats in her hand, just silently holding it aloft in a show of power and solidarity. Oh, man, mm-hmm. what a great movie that would be. Was that the name of that movie, Martha Ray? Norma Ray. Norma, Norma Ray. Ray Denture Ware is the full title. Yeah, something about that didn't sound right when it came out of my mouth. <laughs> That's how I feel about most things that I say. And it doesn't actually get any better with age, I find. No. In fact, it, it seems to be increasing <laughs> at a rapid pace where just something will fall out of my mouth. And I'm like, boy, that was inappropriate 20 years ago, much less today. <laughs> and so... Not Clancy Brown, uh, his main squeeze, Donatello. What's her name? Dornello? Noradello. Noradello. Busts into his office at night looking for some dirt because apparently when she said, I know things, totally bluffing. She didn't know shit. Mm-hmm. So she, she's got to go find something out. Right. And she finds this notice from the inspector that he stamped with his handy dandy recommend closure stamp, which mm-hmm. I think is a pretty good one. Is it just like, the two stamps are okay and recommend closure. <laughs> what else do you need if you're an OSHA agent? I mean, you're right. You're open or you're closed. That's yeah. it, man. It's a very binary choice because she's, I assume, drunk when she. You're right. She does this. She is. She's not assumed drunk. She is drunk. And also in this scene, there's a handle of Jim Beam in the background sitting on a filing cabinet. And I really kept expecting her to snag it before she walked out, (laughs) kind of based on her coffee habit we saw earlier. That was her roadie. (laughs) Yeah, she does it. She turns and she leaves and she like turns off the lights and she walks out. As she leaves, she comically staggers down the hallway of the textile mill. And it's like, well, maybe she showed up with that handle of Jim Beam and she just forgot it on her way out. And then Noradello says, this'll teach you to fire me. And it's here that she 
falls down some stairs and she lands semi-conscious, but she's incapable of movement. And then a bunch of rats show up and start nibbling on her. She's bleeding. And then we see a giant mouse show up and just chomp on her and she screams. That whole scene from the moment she leaves the office to her being killed takes about seven seconds. (laughs) Yeah. And there's no clear explanation of like, did she break her neck? Is that why she can't move? I mean, that's what I assumed. Because she's not it, flailing a boot? It does none of this makes any sense. And yeah, so she gets eaten by rats, question mark. And then Is this a monster movie? yes it is it's just a real shitty one because there are no monsters in this monster movie you know what to make this movie more confusing we now hear the beach boy singing surf and safari as a bunch of rats jump onto little pieces of wood that are floating in streams of water down in the basement and i think that these rats on the boards were basically just a trick that the rat wrangler they hired for this film had in his or her bag of tricks kind of like that water skiing squirrel you know like rats on boards you gotta put that in the movie you can actually see this scene and the squirrel on water skis clip both in the same vhs volume rodents on water (laughs) you can see a ferret on a pond a marmoset in a lagoon right an alpaca in a tributary i'm running out i was just trying to like think of like what are rodents (laughs) Hmm. I'm not sure a marmoset even works. And after a while, I just gave up. (laughs) I just went mammals in general. Yeah, this awful Beach Boy song, because all Beach Boy songs are awful, is playing. And Charlie, not Alexei Sale, and the Wishmaster are playing with a giant hose. And Warwick comes in and is like, hey, knock it off. You're going to get killed using that high-pressure hose, yeah? You can can the music. Keep the ghetto blaster in the ghetto. Ugh. What do you think Charlie, the black guy in the movie, thought about that? I think it was just like, fine, man. I see this every goddamn day. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Anyway, not Tom Berenger asks if they get a gold watch for doing the job, uh, because what what else is the benefit to doing this besides the time and a half? And not Clancy Brown looks pissed, I guess, and then grabs this fire hose and then pulls it like he's going to fire a gun at uh, not Tom Berenger and not Marissa Tomei to the point that not Tom Berenger like has to air tackle her out to the ground. And it turns out that all along, and not Clancy Brown was just hosing down a rat and then says, better than killing him with soda pop, eh, college boy? Who's the protagonist and the antagonist in this film? Because I don't know. I mean, in theory, the antagonist would be... The rat? Or... Clancy Brown? I think it's Clancy Brown. I think the rats are more circumstantial. So I think it's not Tom Berenger v. not Clancy Brown, narratively speaking. All right. And then... Even though that's not the climax of our movie, but okay. Right, but the climax of the movie doesn't really make that much sense no matter what the whole movie doesn't make any sense let's just continue (laughs) so not alexi sale uh is man in the hose and just kind of like weirdly duck walking it around and just being like ha ha (laughs) and blasting water and shit Uh it it's what i would do quite frankly Uh, when i was watching i was like that's that's me to a t that is me just fucking around with a water hose and eventually getting myself killed Pulling in time and a half. Pull, yeah, double time is what we're pulling in. Hey-o. And 
not Marissa Tomei is going through some old papers and she throws one of the bundles at one point, presumably at a rat, but we never see that. And then she tells Charlie like, Hey man, you're making this all look bad. You're doing too good a job. Don't sift through every piece of paper. Like if it's 50 years old, it's shit. Nobody cares. So all of that, he's like, well, we got to log everything. And, he, and she's like, just log it all 50 year old shit as a bundle. You don't have to go through each, each piece of paper. And then not Kyle Gass finds a roll top desk he really likes. And in Chad, you're going to be surprised by this. I think <laughs> he opens the desk just enough for him to stick his mm-hmm. arm inside it. So right. he does. Right. And then it turns out there's a bunch of rats in there. <laughs> it's the same old problem. Work a day rats. My notes on this scene, Bo, are not Clancy Brown comes downstairs and fires not Kyle Gas for reasons not worth explaining. This movie is an incoherent mess. Not Alexi Sale ends up blasting the desk of rats with the hose, mm-hmm. but also somehow doesn't see this ginormous rat tail. And not one of the cool ones like I had when I skateboarded in the 80s, Chad. But like, I remember you looked awesome. I looked pretty cool. I had that painter's yeah. hat and mm-hmm. jorts. Um, <laughs> Your vans. My vans. And then, not Alexei Sale, is blasting the ground at Charlie's feet, like making him dance and shit. Uh-huh. And finally, not Tom Berger grabs the hose from him and is like, hey, man, knock it the fuck off. Yeah. And then this is where not Kyle Gass steps in and is like, hey, we're not exterminators. We shouldn't be dealing with all these rats and shit, right? No. No. Huh. I mean, am I right, guys? Am I right? Like, you guys, they're not paying us enough for this. Like, if they want to sort through some papers, that's cool. But I'm not here to kill a bunch of rats. You know what I'm saying? And sure enough, Warwick is right behind him and is like, you speaking for everyone there, not Kyle Gass? What? Guys? Guys? Immediate stone faces like nobody will meet his eyes. They're like, you fucked up, pal. And... Uh, after being immediately thrown under the bus, then not uh, Clancy Brown is like, well, better head upstairs and punch out permanently. And so he does. And like the one thing he does, he looks back at Wishmaster, who gives him kind of a sarcastic pouty face. It was mm-hmm. a real asshole move of like, hey, I thought we were buddies and you're giving me like a little pout for having just gotten fired. So he leaves the movie to not die and is really the secret right. hero of all this. He and not Tom Berenger are the only two that live. Yeah. Not Clancy Brown is like, I don't remember anyone calling a break. Why don't you get the fuck to work? Right. And so they do. And shoves the hose back into not Alexei Sales' arms. And so finally we get back to the whole reason to watch this movie. Spoilers, there's no reason to watch this movie. At all. Yeah. Uh, Because in not Clancy Brown's office, Warwick, aka not Clancy Brown, is just kicking Brad Dourif's dog. who Who is like, hey man, back off. Moxie, my rat terrier, is a special kind of dog. The name may give it away. <laughs> well, look, this dog didn't waste time chasing frisbees down at the beach with Annette and Frankie. He was trying to find rats. Why is Brad Dourif's right foot perpetually wrapped in a white ace bandage? 
as opposed to having a boot or a shoe on it. Is that ever explained? No, I think it's probably something that got cut from the movie or just never written into the movie or something. All or right. Brad Durf was just like, I got one condition. I do the whole movie with an ace bandage around one leg. That's terrible. <laughs> In this scene, not Clancy Brown and Brad Dorf, they talk about a bunch of nonsense and it ends with not Clancy Brown telling Brad Dorf to go find a rat's nest in the nearby graveyard. And they're doing shots of Jim Beam during this whole scene. And at one point, they give the dog some booze, which is awesome. And then Brad Dorf and his dog, they head off to the graveyard. And this little dog runs off and we hear the... And then Brad Dorf, he goes off looking for his dog in a mausoleum. I think it's a crypt, like an underground crypt. Okay. While he's wandering around looking for his dog, Brad Dorf unceremoniously just gets squished by a large casket that slides down this like 45 degree angle platform and just smashes him into the wall. So he's gone from the movie. Thanks for nothing, Brad Dorf. It is head scratching how this movie just decides to throw away the most interesting slash entertaining character of the film. It's like, what if he just gets hit in the fucking head? What about that? Uh, well that sounds terrible um do that what if he just sinks into the mud never to be seen again okay that's great that's great could someone please take him away my name is ralph singleton i am the director of this movie i know you are ralph i know you are why don't you go sit over there they've got a juicy juice for you (laughs) we come back to the basement and nobody is cleaning everyone instead is just sitting around smoking and then not tom berenger is like Hey guys, there's a trap door over here. And so everybody runs over to this mystery discovery. And then not Tom Berenger says, without opening the trap door, that's where your rats are breeding. And it, and rightfully so, not Clancy Brown says, you think so? You think that's what's going on? College boy, you think you know everything. And not Tom Berenger, who won, did not go to college. At best, he spent a couple of weeks at like Hamburger University or Tallahassee Juco. And he's just like, yeah, this is where all the rats are. They're down here. I know it. Sure enough, like, not Clancy Brown's like, you think so, do you? How about you go first? And sure enough, Tom Berenger's like, okay, I'll do it on one condition. What's that condition there, college boy? You have to be there to hold the line because if I find treasure or something down there. (laughs) Treasure? Treasure. If I find some treasure in in the bottom of your (laughs) mill. It's the Goonies, man. All right, Willie. <laughs> but he's like, if I find something down there, I don't want you to accuse me of stealing or something. I want you to be there with me so there's everything's above board. And also, I'm fucking with you a little bit because if you if you back down in front of the, all these guys, you're going to look like a little bitch. A. B. I, I now look like I'm the one with the power in this situation and that you're the right. cow. And so he's like, all right, college boy. You go first, I'll hold the line, only everyone else is going too. And it's like, okay, well, then this whole scene was pointless, because everyone's just going down there anyway. Right! We're building tension, I suppose? No, you don't suppose. And, anyway, so, our whole fucking gang goes down into this sub-basement, and then immediately, not Marissa Tomei, falls and turns her ankle or something. So, yeah, so she's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be l- hobbled for the rest of the film. And they're like, oh, damn you. And not Tom Berenger is attending her and the rest of the guys are hunting around the room, which used to be, it turns out, uh, a water wheel that powered the plant. 
How did you get that from any of this? Well, because they say you used to be an energy source. This water wheel used to power the plant. All right. I quit paying attention quickly. <laughs> yeah. I Look, I was the one who felt like I had to do closer notes, so I actually listened. And then the Nautilixay sail gets some spiders on him. Did that freak you out, Bo? You don't like spiders. I, I do not care for spiders. I've gotten better about it as time goes okay. on. And I think it, it helps like having my own house now. It's just like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, there are spiders around. I just can't stop right. it. I don't like it, though. I like to pretend there are no spiders here. And he finds the hose again. But, oh, my God, there's a hand attached to it. Whose hand? I don't know. Chad, whose hand is this attached to this hose? I have no idea. It's mind-bogglingly stupid that he picks up the hose and there is this arm attached to the top. And kind of bloody. It's like not just some random skeletal hand like we'll see later. So somehow a hand appears here. And not Alexei Sale sees it and goes, hey, and then runs up the stairs. Except the stairs are rickety. And so he falls through the steps which tears the hose and also busts the floor, dumping him in water beneath this sub-basement. Yeah, it's like a double secret hidden basement beneath the basement. So we're now three basements down. Yes, and we see a giant tail whipping around in the water. Oh, shit. And then not Alexei Sales screams, and he looks all bloody, and he's like, you gotta get me out of here, and then he disappears, and I have no idea what's happening in this scene. And no. and I and my note here is literally good job editor. <laughs> this is I will grant you this. This is one of the worst edited movies we have ever watched. There are a yes. number of times in this movie where you're like, I have no idea what just happened. I will say that at this point, our remaining crew splits up into two different groups. One of them involves our chain-smoking lovebirds, not Tom Berenger and not Marissa Tomei. They run off one way. And then going in the opposite direction, we have Charlie, the black guy in our movie, and the former sidekick Wishmaster, because his buddy is uh, dead via giant rat and then the boss not clancy brown they all run off and not clancy brown takes him into this room where he finds these wooden cases of booze and he cracks them open and pulls out the bottles and says hey we can use these as weapons and i was like are you going to use these as molotov cocktails to kill the giant monster in some sort of double secret basement like three-point attack but he doesn't use them as weapons <laughs> and that's not the craziest part of this whole scene because not clancy brown rubs his hands on the bottles and then pulls off the black muck and smears it over his face to full-on go blackface in this scene man i wish this movie had 30 more things like this in it and then it would be great what do you think Charlie the Black Guy is thinking when not Clancy Brown smears his face with this black muck? That if he sings zippity doo <laughs> that he's going to shoot him in the face. But this movie needs more of this shit, of just like, oh, this guy's going totally bananas. So why not have him cover his face in wine bottle dirt or whatever? You know, like, I don't know what it means, but I'm on board with it because it's at least weird and interesting. And when he said, yeah, we're going to use these as, we've got these, we'll use them as weapons, and I'll fix Hall and his girl and his little dog, too. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that none of this ever pays off in any way is crazy. Right. Like, it's not like he even ever just shatters the bottle and uses the neck of it to stab someone like he's in an international waters monkey knife fight or something. 
Mm-mm. None of that happens. Let's go back to not Tom Berenger and not Marissa Tomei, who is miraculously cured of her sprained ankle from earlier. Congratulations. And then these two fall into this flooded cavern where they find a floating casket to help them escape. And then we cut back to not Clancy Brown and his crew. This trio finds a hidden tunnel and they send Charlie, the black guy in our movie, to go in first, which somehow feels more racist than the blackface we were discussing earlier. And then Charlie, the black guy in our movie, he crawls through this tunnel and he finds a little tiny hole. So naturally he just sticks his arm in this hole and then something eats his arm on the other side and then not Clancy Brown and the Wishmaster, they just run off and leave Charlie, which feels doubly racist than anything that we've discussed so far. (laughs) Yeah, they're just like, fuck that guy. I mean, at least they don't use any slurs here. And maybe it's also... Congratulations, movie. (laughs) Maybe it's also a seniority thing where it's not about the fact that he's black. It's about the fact that they don't know him. And they're just like, you know what? Sorry, pal. (laughs) It feels really racist. It feels a little racist. A lot racist. So they fuck off and Wishmaster then finds this alternate route over some boards over, you know, over a big gap. And he starts to fall into a hole and surprisingly not Clancy Brown helps him out, which is the most like altruistic thing he does in the entire movie. Agreed. But Wishmaster totally freaks out at this point and says he won't move anymore. He's like, I can't, I can't go. I'm I'm done. And I've, I've been that kind of scared. Where it's like, I just... You have? Yeah, not, not chased by rats, but I have a, a pretty bad fear of heights. Uh-huh. And when, uh, when I was in uh, kind of college age, it was after college, it was after I lived in Knoxville, I had a job at uh, one of the convention centers downtown in Nashville doing AV stuff. And as part of that AV stuff, sometimes you would have to rig lights in the ballrooms, which were a couple of stories tall. And so you'd have to go up in a cherry picker, and which are kind of wobbly the higher you go because the center of gravity is so low and you know basically fix the lights to these rafters and there was a point where i was so terrified i just completely locked up and could not like somebody had to like come get me and get me down and then they were like you're not hanging lights anymore and i was like that's probably smart you sound like a baby i don't know that it would happen now but at the time it i was terrified it it yeah, it was one of the, like, anytime I see that in a movie now, I'm like, I, like, most of the time that feels like bullshit, but I, I've certainly been in a situation where I was so terrified I could not move. I've never had that because I'm a real man. The Wishmaster <laughs> is all scared and he pulls out a Zippo lighter and cranks it up and then he looks over and he sees one of the dogs from Ghostbusters and then he screams and he gets killed. And it turns out that that Ghostbusters dog is our giant killer rat so then not clancy brown he just runs off and he falls down head first down what i felt like like a mine shaft into the like super double triple secret basement where he lands safely somehow on a pile of human bones uh not tom berenger and not marissa tomei are going through these like they bust through a wall and are in this labyrinth of tunnels and this is uh, at one point, not Marissa Tomei is like, I'm never going to make it. And he's like, yes, we are. And she's like, I know we will. Cause you just said that. Then they kiss. 
they do kiss. That kiss had to taste terrible, right? They've been in all this like tunnel water and there's been rat blood and smoking. This whole tunnel smells like nothing but straight up ammonia rat piss. That is all that they yeah. can, their eyes are watering. That's all they can smell and taste. Like when they're making out and their tongues are dancing with one another, it is the taste of ammonia that they taste on each other's lips. It's like being 15 years old at a bowling alley. Yeah. Where you're just like, I don't care. This kiss is disgusting, (laughs) but it's better than no kiss at all. And as you get older, you get, you have the embarrassment of riches where you're like, you know what? Not thinking of kiss right now. You can keep that kiss. Thanks. I'm going to get a clean one. (laughs) I won't even kiss someone that hasn't brushed their teeth recently. That's how first world I am. (laughs) hey what did you have what did you have for lunch before we do this you know hummus what kind of hummus was it flavored was it garlic hummus you get get your ass you're very particular Bo. i like that about you (laughs) i I know what i like these two find their way into this cave that has a skylight type opening up in the ceiling it's got one hell of a view of the textile mill but down on the ground there's all of these bones and skulls and femurs and ribs and other body remains and to your point earlier i guess these came from the graveyard i don't know yeah it feels like over time this is again some patented pick six movies fan fiction that over time these rats who have been evolving into giant rats and whatnot have Mm -hmm. basically just busted into all of the graves to consume whatever flesh was there and this is the remainder right i appreciate you making that up but none of that makes any sense in the context of this film (laughs) it's really deep (laughs) as not marissa tomei is tromping around on these bones an arm reaches up and grabs her and it turns out that that's not clancy brown and so she pulls him up and i guess kind of saves him from being underneath all these bones so he repays this act of kindness by punching not marissa tomei right in the stomach and then he starts doing some real body work on not tom berenger and it's a lot of body blow body blow uppercut and suddenly not tom berenger he's down for the count Yeah, and to your point uh, earlier, this is the fighting equivalent of an episode of Star Trek. There are a lot of Mm -hmm. like double axe handles and shit like that. Yeah. It's bad. It's bad fighting. Not Tom Berenger and not Clancy Brown just kind of beat each other up for the better part of 30 seconds that leads to nothing. And then somehow not Clancy Brown finds himself in the possession of a giant Bowie knife and he's going to stab not Tom Berenger, but then not Marissa Tomei comes in and just bonks not Clancy Brown on the head with a board to which not Clancy Brown turns around and just stabs not Marissa Tomei with the knife right in the belly. So she's dead. Mm-hmm. And then there's a distant roar. Uh-huh. Look out. Yeah. And not Clancy Brown runs down a hole while not Tom Berenger is getting not Marissa Tomei out of all the shit and finds her dead. And then oh, no. he just yells at not Clancy Brown and chases after him. So now we have yeah. not Clancy Brown running through these tunnels, followed by not Tom Berenger and not Clancy Brown ends up belly crawling his way through these tunnels until he actually comes across the rat bat, which is a Mm -hmm. giant rat. What has bat wings? Yes. And then in the most head scratching moment of the movie, that's saying a lot, Bo. I feel confident about this. Not Clancy Brown just stands up with his Uh knife and says, yep, we're going to hell together. And then yep. just attacks this bat. Mm-hmm. 
it's eating him. He's biting the thing's wing, like literally biting the thing. Yes. And then it just guts him and eats him as you would expect. We don't really see any of that though. We see him biting the monster, but he's just kind of screaming and then he's gone. Yeah. And then not Tom Berenger comes across the scene of him getting eaten. And that's where he's like, all right, I got to get the fuck out of here. And hauls ass. And he climbs the remains of a hose or a belt or something. Who knows? And just through pure core strength, Chad, pulls himself up this hose back to the main floor. <laughs> like, he goes all through the Castlevania levels, all the way back to the top. Mm-hmm. And then to where he's back in the room with the big picker. Thank God he, he's on he's on home turf. He's got home field advantage. Yeah. So he see, he's got his little bastard slingshot. And... Mm-hmm. He sees a bag of cotton and an idea forms, and he ends up falling back onto this bales of cotton in the in these uh, woolen sacks. Our giant rat bat mo- monster smashes through the walls and just starts tearing up the place. Right. And then he sees that the thing has its tail in the picker. Mm-hmm. So he uses his little bastard brand slingshot to fire a can at the button, and it misses the first time. And then he pulls it back again, and this time he quotes... He says, smile, you son of a bitch. Afraid not. Uh, He says (laughs) what Brad Dourif says, which was, uh, you got to fight them on their own terms. And then he fires a can at the button, and it turns on the picker, and it sucks the big rat into said picker to its doom. And and then maybe my second, third favorite thing in the movie happens. Which it it ends, (laughs) but it's how it ends. It is a quick cut after this to the Bachman mill, putting a sign out saying under new management now hiring. And then the theme song of the movie plays. Did you listen to this? I did. Which is just a Casio keyboard beat with somebody mixing in lines from the movie as if it's some kind of half-ass monster squad rap. And I mm-hmm. never thought I would say this, but that Monster Squad rap way better than this. I, that's I agree with that. This movie is terrible, Bo. <laughs> it's all right. Here, here's what I would say it has going for it. <clears throat> Brad Dourif. Every time is uh, he's in the movie, it's okay. Right. You've got the scene with not Clancy Brown talking about Molotov cocktails, maybe, and also painting himself in blackface. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then you've got the weirdest ass theme or closing credits music I've ever heard in a movie. I really think that MC Hammer doing that Adams Family rap at the end of the original Adams Family movie might be weirder than this. I totally disagree. I think that has actual rapping, whereas Mm -hmm. this is just lines from the movie that kind of sinks to a beat sometimes. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah, this movie's crap. It's really awful. It's really, really bad. It is a bad, bad movie. There is no getting around that. I still, I don't know that it's bottom three. I'd have to, I'd have to look at that list. <laughs> Please do. So let me ask you this, Bo. What do you think would be a good follow-up to this motion picture? If you had to pick another movie that we could review as part of our Hail to the King Baby season that you feel would be a bit of a palate cleanser for Graveyard Chip. Well, Chad, look, if we're going to be talking about Stephen King, let's go right to the source. 
The man mm-hmm. didn't just write movies. He directed one. Yes, he did. So let's quit fucking around with all these shitty adaptations. Right. But go to Stephen, Stephen King is the master of terror. <laughs> and so when he promises, I'm going to scare the hell out of you, you right. know he means it. We're talking about Maximum Overdrive. Oh, we are talking about Maximum Overdrive. You got your Emilio Estevez's. You got your Yardley Mm -hmm. Smith's. You got your your Pat Hingles. uh, You got your Killer Trucks. You got uh, a vending machine. What murders people? Uh, You got some ill-tempered lawnmowers. The world's all gone topsy-turvy in this movie, Chad. So come back and see us in two weeks' time, and we will be presenting Maximum Overdrive, the one and only feature film that was both written by and directed by the master of horror himself, one Stephen King. And I unabashedly love maximum overdrive it's terrible you're not wrong but i love it stephen king himself referred to this movie as a moron movie (laughs) yeah chad that's right up my alley i mean (laughs) you know me long enough if you hear moron movie you gotta at least some part of your brain be like you know who would like this yeah right (laughs) that's right All right. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We will be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode of Pick 6 Movies. As always, send us an email at picksixmovies at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. Like, rate, review, tell a friend. We'd love to hear from you. We really uh, appreciate all of your feedback. If you have an idea for a season, let us know. And uh, we'll look forward to coming back very shortly with episode five of this season, Hail to the King Baby. Bo, any final thoughts on Graveyard Shift? Only that it's, it is a monster movie that lacks monsters, and it, it truly is there any graver a cinematic crime than that? No, there's not. But next time, trucks. There you go. All right. We'll see you next time with trucks.